Section three of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. The Grant Dictations, eighteen eighty five. The Chicago G. A. R. Festival. Dictated in eighteen eighty five. The first time I ever saw General Grant was in the fall or winter of eighteen sixty six at one of the receptions at Washington when he was general of the army. I merely saw and shook hands with him along with the crowd, but had no conversation. It was there, also, that I first saw General Sheridan. I next saw General Grant during his first term as president. Senator Bill Stewart of Nevada proposed to take me in and see the president. We found him in his working costume, with an old, short, linen duster on, and it was well spattered with ink. I had acquired some trifle of notoriety through some letters which I had written in the New York Tribune during my trip round about the world in the Quaker City expedition. I shook hands, and then there was a pause and silence. I couldn't think of anything to say, so I merely looked into the general's grim, immovable countenance a moment or two, in silence, and then I said, Mr. President, I am embarrassed. Are you? He smiled a smile which would have done no discredit to a cast-iron image, and I got away under the smoke of my volley. I did not see him again for some ten years. In the meantime, I had become very thoroughly notorious. Then, in 1879, the general had just returned from his journey through the European and Asiatic world, and his progress from San Francisco eastward had been one continuous ovation, and now he was to be feasted in Chicago by the veterans of the Army of the Tennessee, the first army over which he had had command. The preparations for this occasion were in keeping with the importance of it. The toast committee telegraphed me and asked me if I would be present and respond at the grand banquet to the toast to the ladies. I telegraphed back that the toast was worn out. Everything had been said about the ladies that could be said at a banquet, but there was one class of the community that had always been overlooked upon such occasions, and if they would allow me, I would take that class for a toast. The babies! They were willing, so I prepared my toast and went out to Chicago. There was to be a prodigious procession. General Grant was to review it from a rostrum which had been built out for the purpose from the second-story window of the Palmer House. The rostrum was carpeted and otherwise glorified with flags and so on. The best place of all to see the procession was, of course, from this rostrum, so I sauntered upon that rostrum while as yet it was empty, 
in the hope that I might be permitted to sit there. It was rather a conspicuous place, since upon it the public gaze was fixed and there was a countless multitude below. Presently two gentlemen came upon that platform from the window of the hotel and stepped forward to the front. A prodigious shout went up from the vast multitude below, and I recognized in one of these two gentlemen General Grant. The other was Carter Harrison, the mayor of Chicago, with whom I was acquainted. He saw me, stepped over to me, and said, Wouldn't I like to be introduced to the general? I said I should. So he walked over with me and said, General, let me introduce Mr. Clemens. We shook hands. There was the usual momentary pause, and then the general said, I am not embarrassed, are you? It showed that he had a good memory for trifles as well as for serious things. That banquet was by all odds the most notable one I was ever present at. There were six hundred persons present, mainly veterans of the Army of the Tennessee, and that in itself would have made it a most notable occasion of the kind in my experience, but there were other things which contributed. General Sherman, and in fact nearly all of the surviving great generals of the war, sat in a body on a day's roundabout General Grant. The speakers were of a rare celebrity and ability. That night I heard for the first time a slang expression which had already come into considerable vogue, but I had not myself heard it before. When the speaking began about ten o'clock, I left my place at the table and went away over to the front side of the great dining-room, where I could take in the whole spectacle at one glance. Among others, Colonel Villas was to respond to a toast, and also Colonel Ingersoll, the silver-tongued infidel, who had begun life in Illinois and was exceedingly popular there. Villas was from Wisconsin and was very famous as an orator. He had prepared himself superbly for this occasion. He was about the first speaker on the list of fifteen toasts, and Bob Ingersoll was the ninth. I had taken a position upon the steps in front of the brass band which lifted me up and gave me a good general view. Presently I noticed, leaning against the wall near me, a simple-looking young man wearing the uniform of a private and the badge of the Army of the Tennessee. He seemed to be nervous and ill at ease about something. Presently, while the second speaker was talking, this young man said, Do you know Colonel Villas? I said I had been introduced to him. He sat silent a while and then said, They say he is hell when he gets started. 
I said, In what way? What, what do you mean? Speaking, speaking. They say he is lightning. Yes, I said, I have heard that he is a great speaker. The young man shifted about uneasily for a while, and then he said, Do you reckon he can get away with Bob Ingersoll? I said, I don't know. Another pause. Occasionally he and I would join in the applause when a speaker was on his legs, but this young man seemed to applaud unconsciously. Presently he said, Here in Illinois we think there can't nobody get away with Bob Ingersoll. I said, Is that so? He said, Yes, we don't think anybody can lay over Bob Ingersoll. Then he added sadly, But they do say that Villas is pretty nearly hell. At last Villas rose to speak, and this young man pulled himself together and put on all his anxiety. Villas began to warm up, and the people began to applaud. He delivered himself of one especially fine passage, and there was a general shout, Get up on the table! Get up on the table! Stand up on the table! We can't see you! So a lot of men standing there picked Villas up and stood him on the table in full view of the whole great audience, and he went on with his speech. The young man applauded with the rest, and I could hear the young fellow mutter without being able to make out what he said. But presently, when Villas thundered out something especially fine, there was a tremendous outburst from the whole house, and then this young man said in a sort of despairing way, It ain't no use. Bob can't climb up to that. During the next hour he held his position against the wall in a sort of dazed abstraction, apparently unconscious of place or anything else. And at last, when Ingersoll mounted the supper-table, his worshipper merely straightened up to an attitude of attention, but without manifesting any hope. Ingersoll, with his fair and fresh complexion, handsome figure, and graceful carriage, was beautiful to look at. He was to respond to the toast of the volunteers, and his first sentence or two showed his quality. As his third sentence fell from his lips, the house let go with a crash, and my private looked pleased, and for the first time hopeful, but he had been too much frightened to join in the applause. Presently, when Ingersoll came to the passage in which he said that these volunteers had shed their blood and periled their lives in order that a mother might own her own child, the language was so fine, whatever it was, for I have forgotten, and the delivery was so superb that the vast multitude rose as one man and stood on their feet, 
shouting, stamping, and filling all the place with such a waving of napkins that it was like a snowstorm. This prodigious outburst continued for a minute or two, Ingersoll standing and waiting, and now I happened to notice my private. He was stamping, clapping, shouting, gesticulating like a man who had gone truly mad. At last, when quiet was restored once more, he glanced up at me with the tears in his eyes and said, Ye God, he didn't get left. My own speech was granted the perilous distinction of the place of honor. It was the last speech on the list an honor which no person probably has ever sought. It was not reached until two o'clock in the morning, but when I got on my feet I knew that there was at any rate one point in my favor. The text was bound to have the sympathy of nine-tenths of the men present, and of every woman married or single of the crowds of the sex who stood huddled in the various doorways i expected the speech to go off well and it did in it i had a drive at general sheridan's comparatively new twins and various other things calculated to make it go there was only one thing in it that i had fears about and that one thing stood where it could not be removed in case of disaster. It was the last sentence in the speech. I had been picturing the America of fifty years hence, with a population of two hundred million souls, and was saying that the future president, admiral, and so forth, of that great coming time, were now lying in their various cradles, scattered abroad over the vast expanse of this country, and then said, And now, in his cradle, somewhere under the flag, the future illustrious commander-in-chief of the American armies is so little burdened with his approaching grandeur and responsibilities as to be giving his whole strategic mind at this moment to trying to find some way to get his big toe into his mouth something meaning no disrespect to the illustrious guest of this evening which he turned his entire attention to some fifty-six years ago and here as i had expected the laughter ceased and a sort of shuddering silence took its place for this was apparently carrying the matter too far i waited a moment or two to let this silence sink well home then turning toward the general i added and if the child is but the father of the man there are mighty few who will doubt that he succeeded which relieved the house, for when they saw the general break up in good-sized pieces, they followed suit, 
with great enthusiasm. End of section three. The Chicago G.A.R. Festival.